The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Okay, we're rolling. Hey, Ben. Hey, Ilya. How's it going? It's going pretty well. It's another episode time. It is yet another episode, and we've forgotten what number, and we don't care, and we're just going with wild abandon, not even paying any attention to what number episode we're on. On the show today is Alec Sakharov, and uh, Alec is an uh, incredible director and uh, cinematographer. He uh, started off his career as a cinematographer, and we talk a lot about his uh, origin story and uh, all the work that he has done over the years. And he had a period of time where he was doing both DP and directing work, and now he basically is a director. And he actually has a new project that's about to uh, launch right now, and I believe it's called Witcher. Oh, yeah, Witcher. That's a Netflix uh, thing, correct? It is. And it seems to be getting a lot of buzz and has a lot of uh, promo behind it. Henry Cavill. Yeah, exactly. So uh, Witcher, definitely check out Witcher. And here's the setup for this interview. The setup is is that it's an interview that happened in sort of a semi-public forum. Like a high wire, like you're... uh yeah, like, like you're literally on a in a circus. Well, I I got drafted at the very last minute to essentially be the moderator. Oh, for, you told me about this. This, a, is, this yeah. is nuts. So yes, um, at the camera image or camera image uh, film festival, uh, Alex Sakharov. You, you keep was, telling me that it's actually pronounced camera image. Yeah, all uh, everyone from Poland is part of the festival. Calls it camera image. I find that when I say camera image, people think I'm talking about like some sort of like uh, sort of two bit used camera sale like in the Midwest. Mm. But uh, but no, it's it's a it's a fantastic- in your face, Indianapolis. <laughs> <laughs> really, what what this is, is a festival that takes place in Poland every year and it's all about cinematography. And so I went this year and while I was in the audience and getting ready for Alex Sakharov to do his presentation, his seminar that he was going to do. The, the festival people came over and said, hey, we don't have a moderator. How do you feel about speaking extemporaneously? And I saw the look on his face, which was like, I won't say terror. I won't say dread. It was kind of like, what? Like, come on. And I raised my hand and I was like, look, uh, I have this thing called the Cinematography Podcast. You say that the topic of discussion is the director DP relationship. I talk about this all the time and ask questions. And he was like immediately gesturing for me, like, come over here right now. And can you get this guy a mic? And so (laughs) that's basically what happened. The topic was the director DP relationship. And we talk about some other stuff, too. And then we do a QA. and a And I'm not actually sure if Ben Katz will leave any of the Q&A in. I think that as a lot of Q&As go, maybe not necessarily the the best questions are asked. You should just leave the Q's and cut out all the A's. We can cut out the no, no, that that, that doesn't work. Well, I mean, well, you know, I talked. I think it'd be funny if it was just a string of you asking questions and then silence and then you asking another question and then silence what? no 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 your joke fell flat ben look it's it, they can't all be gold uh and 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 dear listeners you understand uh, our our dedication to you right now because of course it is uh it is getting very late we just did another incredible interview which i can't wait is going to be coming up in january and then i forced Ilya to watch the trailer for cats yes and uh if you have not seen the trailer for cats which let's face it why why do you need to see the trailer for cats you have to see the trailer for cats <laughs> That's why my, my reaction after seeing the trailer for Cats was like, this should have been an Isle of Dr. Moreau type it's of like thing. an accidental island of Dr. Moreau, as far as I can tell. Yeah. Or maybe like an episode of Black Mirror where like, you know, people, uh, p- weird human feline sapien 
hybrids like rise up from the gutters and uh yeah like, that, like chuds but made of cat people made of, made of yes made of uh fur and and fair computer, computer fair. graphics i i would i would definitely pay to see that <laughs> well it kind of looks like that if you can over if you can you know accept that there's judy dench and idris elba and all these other people Ian and mckellen yeah <laughs> jennifer hudson uh taylor swift all yeah. these people in this in this rebel thing. wilson james uh, corden i mean like my god it, it's it's a cast it, it's, it's an amazing cast it's an amazing cast for a musical a direct on the nose musical adaptation of the Broadway. Somebody had to do it. It was yeah. going to happen. Yeah. I, you know, this should be our close focus. Really. We should just roll right into close focus right now about adaptations and, you know, sure. whether whether or not they uh, should be what they were. I mean, I, I kind of feel like Cats may have run for a long time. It may have been beloved. Watching that trailer, it feels so time out of place to me. Well, I do think that some things are movies and some things are not. And I think that that's fair. Yeah, that's true. I remember distinctly when I was a kid, a touring company of cats came to Orlando and my parents took me to the Bob Carr Auditorium and I watched it and I was like, 12 and I loved it and I got a cat's t-shirt and I was very excited to wear my cat's t-shirt all the time and I think it's because I'd never seen a live theatrical presentation that was so visual and so different and I mean it, it's a super weird play if you look at it if you break it down dramatically like by the standards of dramatic structure clearly you've put some thought into this I have I have <laughs> so okay so I think a lot about theater anyway I really do. You do. I, I know. I know you do. And actually, Ben, here I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna flatter you here for a second. Oh no. Uh, yeah, yeah. You do something that I think a lot of more people who introduce themselves to me as directors should do. You keep your tools sharp. You go out and direct theater if you're not doing something that involves a camera. Like yeah. you, you are working with actors. You are, you know, keeping your keeping yourself. Uh, prepared at all times and ready for whatever the next project's going to be. You are constantly doing that. Where I meet a lot of people, it's like, oh, yeah, I'm a director. And they say, well, when was the last time you did something? Anything. Anything that had to do with it. And or maybe I don't even ask, talk to them on the nose. Yeah. You know, so ask the question so on the nose. But they bring it up and they go, like, well, I haven't done anything in three years. And it's like, whoa. Well, if something comes along. Uh, yeah. It's, yeah. It, it is easy. Well, I, you know, here, here goes a coin into the swear jar. Uh, since I had a baby, uh, my, uh, my theater habits, the baby. my theater habits been a little bit curtailed because uh, you don't pay the bills with that unless you're uh, in a very special position in American theater. Sure. Sure. But that, anyway, OK, on, go on, back on topic. On back topic to our, of, our close focus. Of, yeah. Well, on the topic of the George Foyt close focus of adaptation, I do think that a lot of times it's hard to get an adaptation right, even if you have rich source material. A, uh, a for instance, that I will float mm-hmm. is a project that I was lucky enough to work on, which was the adaptation of The Dark Tower. Now, the version that got made was not the version I worked on. The version I worked on was when Ron Howard was going to direct it and mm-hmm. Akiva Goldsman was writing it. And a lot of people had taken a whack at adapting uh, The Dark Tower. I believe J.J. Abrams had been one of them. Rich source material. Hard to translate. Yeah, and it's like if I were to pitch you The Dark Tower, which is an amazing series of books by Stephen King, three minutes in you would think that I was just insane and making stuff up because it's such a crazy mishmash of stories and it's really, really hard to get stuff across. I think that sometimes, you know, like if you look at the old Dashiell Hammett kind of detective stories and stuff like that, that that a lot of them became noir films. If you see the source material, the books are kind of short and I think that kind of stuff often lends itself to adaptation. You know, it's interesting because uh, even if you have great source material that is perfectly well suited, it doesn't always translate to then 
the movie version. Like I probably told you my Frank Darabont story many years ago. No. Looking at the at your face here, he looks like I've not mentioned this. I Frank, think you should tell me your Frank Darabont story. Okay, so Frank Darabont came to my film school, San Francisco State. Nice. Back in the Fancy. early early nineties and mm-hmm. uh did a screening of uh, Shawshank Redemption and then was like, oh, and here's a script for the Shawshank Redemption. And here's my original script for Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, which got made by Kenneth Branagh. But the version that gets made is completely different from his script. And mm-hmm. he handed me the script and was like, you know, um, give it a read. And I did. And it's like, it's freaking great. It's like his version of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein is like, yeah. what? I mean, it, it like this is fantastic fantastic source material it is paint by numbers you just follow this script and you'll have an incredible no it, it it that's never how it works though never how it works the adaptation of what seemingly is perfect on the you know designed for this medium designed for something like you can go back to the uh, original material and you can try to um, embellish or change or do whatever you want but even when you have like the blueprint it doesn't necessarily end up how it's how how well, it yeah, could because be, it's gonna how go it through, should be. Well, any anything that gets made into a movie or a TV series obviously goes through several filters. The you know the last of which being the edit, but the first of which being like executives or producers or directors pouring over it and then you know making a pile of compromises that a lot of them are just like logistically based or budgetarily based. But then also you will encounter people who just like I don't like uh, you know I don't like stories uh, you know in restaurants and so like. You know, the big restaurant scene has to go because it's just somebody's personal peccadillo and uh, and an adaptation kind of goes through that. But also like a lot of times like uh, there's an adaptation of the Kurt Vonnegut novel Slaughterhouse Five that's actually pretty good. And it came out in the early 70s. And it's I say it's pretty good. I think if you'd never read Slaughterhouse Five and you watch that movie, you'd be like, you know, it, it's an entrancingly weird story. And they sure they nailed it. However, it actually misses everything that's the point of Slaughterhouse Five because it's all the interior part of that of that book. When you have a book like, uh, say, The Da Vinci Code or mm. Harry Potter, where it's like all very plot and character, and it's all kind of right there, you the adaptations tend to work. Uh, I won't. Say, it's not, none of it's easy. It's never easy, but I feel like the adaptations have a better chance because you know The Da Vinci Code is just like a very straightforward A to B to C story. And, and so it, it almost is written, it, it's not quite written as a screenplay, but it's written like a very detailed scriptment or, you know, and, and the Harry Potter books, I feel like are sort of the same when you look at something like the, um, the adaptations of the Lord of the Rings books, for instance, that, uh, that Peter Jackson did. Uh, I know that I'm more of a fan of those than you are, mm. but I feel like what an impossible task to adapt like these three massive, long, complex books into three finite movies and uh if you were doing it today and i think actually this is happening today at amazon you'd probably do it as a tv series because with books like that oftentimes and and i think dark tower is a perfect example of this the world is the interesting part not necessarily the you know we went to the we went to this place then we went to that place and then there was a fight scene and then we went to this other place it's like soaking in the world and soaking in kind of the deep creepy ass dilemmas of the characters becomes that's the interesting part for for the person who's uh, who's reading it or watching it. And it's uh, I, I actually feel like in the last five, 10 years, we've gotten to a point where people are more interested in adapting something that's like an, a sprawling novel into a TV series. 
rather than trying to condense into a movie, because no matter what you do, you're probably not going to have a movie that's over, say, two and a half hours long. I mean, they do make three hour long movies, but they're rare. Yeah, you you couldn't have teed me up better because, uh, you know, many, many years ago, when I worked at CAA, I got to read the script to that Kennedy Marshall had had uh, purchased the rights to for uh, Snow Crash, the Neil Stevenson book that, uh, of course, was credited with creating lots of the lingo that we use today for with describing the Internet. Well, really wasn't a very big fan of that script and really was a big fan of the book. And I thought, wow, there's no way that this is going to make anyone happy. Well, just recently announced HBO for HBO Max is turning Snow Crash into a TV series. And it's Sweet. big and it's sprawling. And I think it's going to work out great because they can let it breathe. They can have lots of, uh, they can go down all kinds of different paths that maybe the world is really interesting and you don't necessarily have to stick to just the one sort of uh, hero protagonist story that, that goes through that. But uh, because they chose this really uh, incredible source material, uh, they win. I'm going to subscribe to HBO Max now. That's that's, that's going to happen. So, <laughs> well, so uh, yeah. And I think that one of the things that's important to think about, too, by the way, is like if you're adapting material, what does it best adapt to? And I think that up until, again, like five, six years ago, maybe 10 years ago, people were just focused on the movie because that's really where the money was and that's where the eyeballs were and people were going to movie theaters. But I think that the culture has changed now in a positive way for that. In that we're more interested in more immersive, longer narrative stories. And we're, I think as long as it's well-crafted and works for the audience, it sometimes makes more sense to adapt from a novel or a graphic novel or a whatever, you know, a Renaissance painting, whatever it is your, your source material is. And packing it into a two-hour theatrical experience. Exactly. I mean, if it works in that, like, I feel like The Da Vinci Code works in that form because in my opinion, the book was kind of thin. <laughs> a, a better version of that book is uh, is a book that I've been a giant fan of for a long time called Foucault's Pendulum. It would never work as a movie because there's too much information in that. And uh, if there is proof in the pudding, it's the other Umberto Eco uh, adaptation in the name of The Rose. Oh, sure. Which is a yeah, great yeah. novel and yeah, kind, of kind of a thin of a movie. Tough movie. Yeah. yeah, it's just not. There's yeah. some great mise-en-scene. There's some nice yeah, there, performances, but it's, yeah, yeah there's you're great right. work in yeah. it, but it's, but it's just, it, the material is overwhelmingly larger than a movie scope mm-hmm. can, can be. And, you know, you can really, I, I'm not saying you can't do a lot in two, two and a half hours, but you know. So, if, so when do you think the budgets for long form, uh, world building television eclipses that of the two hour feature film? Eclipses? I don't know. I mean, here, here's what I do know. Um, is that like when Game of Thrones first came on and I think the budgets went up, it was like $8 million an episode. Now that's $8 million for one hour in a a world where the blockbuster movie version of that would have been $150 million for two hours. Correct. So they have $16 million about for like the length of time of the movie. I'm assuming the budgets went way up as the seasons Uh, went on. Yes, I think it became the most expensive show that HBO ever made. Yeah, makes sense. Uh, When do they eclipse features? I mean, 2026, uh, <laughs> March 2nd, 2026. No, I think, I, that, who knows? I think that's a fair guess. Yeah. No, I mean, I just I just think that the economy of making a, a series is completely different than the economy of making a feature because a series is a lot longer. But you're going through one casting process, you know, a lot of times reusing the same sets and locations from other episodes. So it drives certain costs 
down, you know, uh, maybe a better question is like, when is uh, a, a TV star going to make more money than the biggest movie star of the same year? Mm, good question. Yeah. Good question. And I'm going to leave it there. All right. So, hey, uh, just quick disclaimer for this interview uh, slash seminar slash uh, camera image event that you guys are about to hear. The audio is a little inconsistent because I had to really quickly throw down a, a portable recorder, which is not typically the way that we like to do these things. Uh, it is still completely listenable. You will be able to hear it, but the quality actually improves after about a few minutes in mm-hmm. because uh, we were able to get an audio feed from the people at the festival, which they started uh, a few minutes into the presentation. But before that time at the beginning, it's all on this little Zoom recorder, and then it gets better as we go along. Also, the room is filled with cats, to, the- to bring it back around. <laughs> They're meowing a lot. Yeah, no, uh, but it is filled with uh, probably about 400. Oh, yeah, and, that, and here was the semi-public thing I didn't even get to. When the seminar was over, uh, I did not realize it because it's a very unflattering angle, and thankfully it won't be. Uh, it won't, it won't, I won't be showing the video portion of this. Mm-hmm. But it turns out that there was cameras way in the back behind a bunch of lights where it was impossible for Alec or I to be able to see what was going on. They were broadcasting it through the building, so there's the thousands of people who were there got to see me doing this thing at a very unflattering angle. And uh, when I left, people kept coming up to me like, "Hey, great job with hey, that interview!" And you look way more handsome than you did on television. <laughs> And without further ado, here is the interview with Alec Sakharov. The Cinematography Podcast Interview. Alec Sakharov, sitting next to me here, is a fantastic cinematographer and director. Uh, Alec, what's harder for you? Is it harder to work as a cinematographer? Harder to work as a director? What is your what What keeps you up at night? Actually, nothing keeps me up at night anymore. <laughs> Uh, there was a time when uh, it was all very daunting and uh, complicated and uh, a lot of anxiety producing, but I'm a little too old for that. So um, cinematography and directing, what's more difficult than the other? I don't ever segregate, to be honest with you. To me, it's filmmaking. I think cinematography, directing and writing comprises the whole for me. It's telling the story. As a cinematographer, you have a tool to tell the story as a cinematographer, as a director, you have a way to tell the story as a director, as a writer, as a writer. And then when you throw all of that aside and you want to bring the um, emotion and feel uh, to reach the audience, then you could basically use all those tools to tell a story. And I guess the person who does it really, really well would be Steven Soderbergh, for whom it really doesn't matter whether he's directing or, or shooting or writing. It's just one, one complete whole. So for me, to be perfectly honest with you, I'm, I feel so comfortable in, in those shoes that I no longer segregate one from the other. It's, a, it's, a, it's an organic process. When I stage the scene, I look at it not only as a director, but I also look at it as a cinematographer. And sometimes I need to rewrite things on the go. And I need to recompose uh, the dialogue on the go. And so. The element of writing steps into being, and you start doing that, and um, you don't tick off the boxes. You know, it's a, it's a whole process, and so you go go through that process organically. Does it keep me uh, up at night? It depends. I guess I guess there's some um, some elements that might. Uh, if you're shooting a huge scene involving uh, I don't know 600 extras, and you need to make good use of the day. You need to come in into the day very, very, very prepared. You need to know exactly what you're going to be doing. You cannot show up on a set 
scratching your head, uh, looking left and right, looking for inspiration. You have to lead people. They need a leader. So preparation is the key. I usually uh, spend my weekends doing the shoot, defining every single step that I'm going to be doing during that upcoming week. So when I arrive on uh, the set on Monday, I have my sights already done. Nobody's doing my sights for me, I do it myself. I um, color code everything, usually. I understand uh, what the general blocking is going to be like. I know what I'm going to be asking of the actors, I know what I'm going to be asking of the, of the crew, I know what I'm going to be, uh, what lenses I'm going to be asking for, and uh, where I'm going to be placing the cameras. I know all that beforehand. It doesn't mean that I'm locked into uh, what I have in my head. You have to be always very flexible because, you know, skies may open up and then it will be pouring rain and then you cannot do what you want to do. So uh, you have to be very flexible in how you're going to go about the day and whether or not you have plan B, C, or whatever. But as you go along and as you uh, accumulate the experience, those things don't phase you anymore. You just pull them out of the bag, so to speak, and just continue going. And uh, you change things on the go and uh, you make your day. You have to. Especially in television, you gotta make a day, guys. And then you're gonna be employed. Definitely making your day keeps you employed. Uh, you know, you talk a lot about impro improvisation. Uh, when you're working as a cinematographer, do you feel like there's a lot of improvisation from your team behind the camera? Because I know that sometimes actors are being asked or actors just decide that they're going to, to do something else. When you're behind the camera, do you ever feel like, I need, a, I need an extra take that is uh, completely not what uh, what's on the page or maybe on the shot list? It's something that uh, inspiration strikes and you need to, to capture it in that moment. Yes and no, it depends uh, on the situation. Um, like everything else in cinema, it depends on the situation, on circumstance, on how things are unfolding. When I used to shoot Sopranos, my style was always very kind of open. You know, I love the camera on, um, on the dance floor. I mean, I come from Russia, you know, so for us, uh, for us to, to try and resolve the shot in a single shot was always a big challenge, right? Obviously, you know, coverage was dictated upon us and we had to cover the scene, but in essence, if you have a very strong master, the coverage becomes uh, a byproduct of that, uh, which is very organic and simple and fast. So to answer your question, um, yeah, sometimes you move the camera in a very particular way and it's all studied. And then um, you turn around and say, let's say it's Simon Patton directing or Alan Taylor or Alan Coulter. And you go, uh, hey guys, you know, I have this idea. Can we just run it again and maybe we concentrate on uh, uh, Tony Soprano character as opposed to Carmelo Soprano. And usually directors will say, sure, we already have the take. Do what you want. See what we can get. And as a director, uh, if my DP uh, comes to me and says, listen, I have this idea, I want to run it again, and uh, this time I want to do it uh, all in focus and in, uh, in perspective, not in the foreground. Can I do that? Like, just do whatever you want. We have it. So you have to be open, and you have to be open to the opportunities and ideas, because things come up, and those things come up sometimes, they're unexpectedly good. So if you're going to lock in yourself into something that is locked in, then you're locking yourself out of, uh, uh, out of discoveries. Do you know what I mean? Uh, yes, I do. Since we're talking about your, your work as a cinematographer to start off with, and we'll talk more about your, your work as a, as a director in, in a little bit, working, when working as a cinematographer, you, if you were to design your perfect director in a laboratory, like uh, this, this would be like the most dream person to, uh, to work with, what sort of qualities, what, what do you want from the director when you're working as a cinematographer? What, what can they do to make your job better, make your, job, make your life easier? 
I think it's the other way around. Director cannot be working for cinematographer, period. I was a cinematographer for, for almost 30 years. It just doesn't work that way. And it shouldn't that work that way. It's the other way around. Cinematographer has to help the director tell the story. Some cinematographers are absolutely great at that, and some aren't, and I work with them all. So it's not whether the director can help the cinematographer, it's completely the other way around. Because director is going to come up with some sort of a vision, right? And then it's up to the cinematographer to see if he can help the director. Because what you want to do, you want to create a relationship that is a relationship. It's a partnership. And in that partnership, you need to define that you guys are working on the same picture, on the same movie. You can't be working on two different movies because it's going to all fall apart. Certainly, when working as a cinematographer, though, there are some directors who make your, make your job easier. They communicate in a way that works for you. You guys get on the same page. What's that type of director like? What's, the, what's that one? Are they, do they come in organized with uh, all their, their shot lists? Do you guys like to work together? Where, where, does, that, where does that come from when you're working? Uh, for me personally, it comes from prep. What usually happens, I always choose my location. It's like casting. You know, location is sort of like... Um, I was not, I'm not the one who discovered this whole thing. You know, Gordon Willis was the first one who said, you know, if you find a location that works, the tonal representation of that location is closely paralleling the, uh, the tonal call of what's written in the script, then half of the work is done. You know, so basically, you're casting the location. And then when you arrive at that location, you as a cinematographer and a director, and, and as a director, or both of you, you know, you very carefully work the location such that you're putting your blocking into that location so it organically fits. When it fits organically, it lights itself organically. You don't need to do much work. I mean, you have to work. You have to service the location, obviously. You have your crew to do that for you. But it's that very subtle touch to enhance as opposed to completely relight everything, right? That's casting, location casting. Okay, so let, let's, let's flip this slightly. As a director, and you could make your ideal cinematographer in the lab. What sort of qualities are you looking for then in the cinematographer to come work with you to make your life easier, to make, to make your job better? I want him to be a great guy. I want him to be fun. I want us to talk about cinema. I want us to have wine together afterwards. I want us to work on a set without any tensions. I want us to be kids in a toy store. I want us to play. All right, so, so uh, have as much fun on the day as possible while still getting, getting all your... And you can. Yeah, I mean, yeah. look at the work. You can. Uh, <laughs> you've been uh, directing now some of the most popular and some of the most uh, visual series on television, including things like Counterpart and Ozark and House of Cards. When you're coming into these projects as a director, and usually the, the look of the show has already been established. Maybe it's been established uh, from previous seasons, or maybe it's been modified slightly from the original look as other people come on. How much creative license do you want to have when you're coming in? Do you want to basically maintain things the way it is? Do you want to make subtle changes? What's your, what's your thought on working with an established look on, on one of these series? It's a great question. I think if you come on, coming onto the show like... House of Cards, for instance, you know, which was set up by David Fincher. Well, <laughs> you don't want to change anything. <laughs> you know, I mean, David Fincher, you know, my head is off to him. I mean, the guy's brilliant. So uh, when you have that opportunity, uh, you don't want to reinvent the wheel. The wheel you know, you, you want to meet the standard, which is a hard thing to do. 
And obviously, you know, uh, as a director and as a team of people who have uh, who uh, has established that look with David, with David, so you're basically you have a lot of freedom really to move the camera the way that you want, but you know, to be within within the established parameters. You can block the scene the way you want within the established parameters. You know, you you want to maintain the uh, aesthetic appeal of the show. While you're doing that, you can also add some things that you think uh, could enhance. You know, I'm a big fan of Tarkovsky, you know, so for me, trying to get something as sincere and um, emotionally honest as is repre representative in uh, the work of Andrei Tarkovsky, you know, that's probably my biggest challenge, to be honest. When working as a director, uh, and actually it's probably also a, as a cameraman as well, but um, do you feel like it's your responsibility to extract the truth, as much of the truth to make that moment real uh, as possible. I've, I've heard this said before, that that's, uh, that that's a goal, is to make sure that everyone believes it as it's happening. Uh, what's, what's, your, what's your feeling about absolutely. this? Absolutely. Truth. Absolutely. I mean, if nobody believes in, uh, in the episode because the acting is tilted and it's not true to life and, you know, audience is very smart, you know, you can't fool them then you have failed as a director. So you need to elicit that response that hopefully on the other side of the tele television screen or, you know, whatever. The emotion is met by the honesty of the emotion that is being projected by the actor. And if you can find that hook and communication with the audience, you're there. I mean, my latest uh, thing is Ozark. And one of the things I really admire about Ozark is that those guys can act, man. I mean, they're great. <laughs> They, they, they elicit all sorts of emotions. Sometimes I sit behind the monitor when I watch uh, their performance, and I'm usually the same in the same room with the actors. I can't help but, you know, take my handkerchief. I mean, it's, it's honest, and it's real. Tell us a little bit about the transition, because you, uh, you have a tremendous career as a cinematographer, and I think for a lot of cinematographers, um, moving into what feels like a new space might be very daunting. Might be, you know, it's a, it's a different set of muscles that you have to exercise as, as a director than as, as a DP. I know that you just explained how it all feels the same when you're on set, but uh, from a career management standpoint, how, do you, how does one go from, from shooting to then uh, the other seat in Video Village? So funny, because, you know, I, I actually started in the business as a director. Oh, really? Yeah. I, I didn't know that. Yeah. I was uh, early on in, uh, in my life. Uh, I was in the uh, mid-80s. Uh, it was 84, 85. I really didn't know what the hell I wanted to do, to be honest with you. I was young. And so I made this documentary about Russian immigrants, uh, very much like myself, in New York. Basically, just a bunch of friends uh, gathered in front of the camera and spoke about their experiences um, uh, being new Americans. And uh, so I... Uh, in the beginning, I didn't really think that I was going to put together a film of that. You know, it was just more like an exercise. And then I was encouraged to put it all together, and I did, and it became a half-hour film, which I didn't really think much of, but uh, it caught an eye of some production uh, coordinator in industrial world in New York. And this was uh, back in the day of um, three-quarter-inch editing machines, you know, 58, oh, yeah. 50 Sonys. Remember those? Pneumatic. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, um, My favorite. Yeah, right? <laughs> So I remember um, I originated some of that stuff on electronic camera, Ikigami camera, and some of the stuff was shot on 16-millimeter Eclair camera, NPR. And so it became a blend. Um, and so someone had seen it, and uh, I got this random phone call out of the blue from a production coordinator for JCPenney, film stu uh, JCPenney te Television Studios in New York, which was a child company of JCPenney stores. And they asked me to come to New York to meet with them. And at the time, I was living in New Jersey. 
I went there as a young man, and they basically um, started asking me all these questions. You have equipment? I'm like, yeah, I have this um, small camera. It's Ikigami camera, and I have an NPR camera. And they said, do you want to come and work for, that, for us? We have a TV studio, and we're doing these little vignettes for our program. It's basically a new line of clothing for JCPenney stores, which, and they did, at the time, they did something very, very, uh, I thought, quite advanced. Uh, they had direct broadcast satellite systems set up, and they were trying to replace their physical f sales force that travels across the country with uh, new, new, new clothing samples. And what they were doing instead is they were projecting these new uh, clothing samples on models into the stores, and the buyers would be watching these little rolling programs and buy the new merchandise. So my job would have been to come there, put some new line of clothes on some models, and uh, photograph them this way and that way, and then uh, create like three or four minute videos, Then, after which I would then submit to Bob or his assistant, um, Jim or whoever, and then uh, they would roll it into the, their direct broadcast satellite program. And I said, so yeah, sure, but am I going to be directing? He said, no, no, you're going to be just running camera and lighting. All right. I mean, better to be working than not, right? So I ended up being, you know, the video guy, that, you know, industrial guy in the um, JCPenney environment. And it lasted for about, like, until 89, 90. And uh, as I was doing those things, you know, I started getting much better at uh, lighting things and communicating uh, with, uh, with mannequins or, you know, models. Things beginning to look up, and I started uh, getting a lot of extra work from the likes of IBM and Nabisco. And then it all led to uh, an opportunity to make a film or shoot a film for a friend's friend, which was a 20 or 22 minute film uh, uh, called Big and Mean. It was shot professionally on 35 millimeter camera with the laboratory, the whole nine yards. And uh, that led to another opportunity to do a feature film now called Midnight Edition. And then after that, I started shooting feature films. I was now in demand cinematographer without ever wanting to be cinematographer. <laughs> And so I started shooting all that stuff, and then in 1996, I think, I got called by David Chase of Sopranos, and, you know, he said that he watched some of my films and he liked it, and that he wanted me to read his scenario called uh, The Sopranos. And I did that. I shot his pilot, and then some. Yeah, and maybe 38 episodes more. <laughs> so, so, yeah, it, it just goes to show that, uh, you know, that J.C. Penney's industrial job can lead to your next thing, to your next thing, to your next thing. It's like, I'm, I'm sure you didn't think that when you first started working no, at JCPenney. No, of course so. not. I mean, it's, and also, you know, to be perfectly honest with you guys, I don't have any formal education in cinema, none. You know, so you can talk to me like a human being. <laughs> so um, basically, everything I learned is sort of like either on the go or in an autodidactic kind of way. and. Um, uh, spending a lot of time in the laboratory and uh, experimenting with uh, film, with processing, with uh, printing lights and uh, whatnot. And then obviously when everything got shifted to video world, it's like coming back to the video world. Basically, you know, scopes and waveform. And uh, it hasn't uh, been daunting, but it's been different. Uh, yes, definitely. And being an autodidact in the world of film, and uh, not having that formalized education, this is some heady stuff. I mean, uh, it's, it's been said many times, and I have a tendency to repeat it, but um, they say that the best cinematographers are part artist and part plumber. On that scale of artist and plumber, uh, it, 
where do you where do you feel like you come down? Do you feel like it's a, a 50-50 split? Do you feel more artist? Do you feel more plumber? What's what's your? I think I always felt more artistic than uh, than technical, simply because to this day it's still it's it's still daunting to me some of the technical stuff that uh, real cinematographers do, you know. And my head is off to them. And I guess one of the reasons why I segued to directing is because I felt probably like an imposter, you know, taking somebody else's job away from someone who's, who really actually deserves it and, and studied and worked his ass off to get there. And there was I, you know, the industrial guy doing that kind of work. So, and I'm not posing, I'm actually being very honest about this. So there's a lot of stuff that I don't know. And so as a cinematographer, you know, you have a great team that are always ready to back you up. And I had a wonderful team of uh, operators and great focus pullers. And uh, the one thing that I always had is an eye for composition, always. So every single choice that I make and every single lens that I pick and every compositional um, decision that I make, it's mine. Can't take that away from me. But there are many, many things that I don't know I'll ask my guys. I'm like, okay, guys, I need to shoot this at four and a half, you know. And like, okay, you need to put, you know, 1.2 ND here to do that. So all those things, it was kind of like I was learning on the go. And obviously, as you as you shoot, you know, I've shot so much material. As, as you go along, you get so much better at it. So by the time I started doing big stuff, you know, like Rome or uh, later on Game of Thrones, you know, setting up the look for those huge shows, you know, is not you got to you got to bring something to the game. <laughs> so it was daunting, it was tough, but we did it, you know. But to cycle back to cinematography, um, segueing to directing, I, uh, I broached that subject with David Chase uh, on Sopranos towards the end. I think it was season five. I asked him, you know, is there a way for me to direct? And so, you know, opportunity came up to do some second unit and then some of the uh, things that were hanging outside of the schedule and some of the things that we need to pick up and small shots and uh, scenes. And so I started directing little by little and it felt so organic. It felt so natural to be just speaking with actors and, uh, and trying to define the tone of the scene and uh, find what it's all about. And now having accumulated all this experience as cinematographer, staging, and cleverly staging so that you could quickly light it as well became an organic process. I don't, know, I don't ever want to stage a scene that a cinematographer cannot light. I don't ever want to stage a scene that presents a huge challenge to cinematographer in ways that it uh, translates to hours and hours and hours of setup. I just won't do it. I, I don't want to kill my career. So, you know, it's simpler. Tell us about your first day as a director on, on set for, for a TV series? Like, uh, how does it feel? Are you stepping outside of your comfort zone? Are you reading the script six times the night before? What, what, what's uh, what's, what's your, your first day like? Yeah, you always feel trepidation, of course. If I tell you that I don't, it's, uh, it would be a liar. Um, no, you feel, you feel nervous energy, you feel, I mean, I think it's what Sarah Bernhardt said, you know, um, if you come on stage without a sense of trepidation, uh, it's the time to quit. Right, so um, we all perform, you know. Performance behind the camera is just as important as in front of the camera. When several pairs of eyes are looking at you as you're putting on the lens, you know, because the time is ticking, you're performing, right? When ser several pairs of eyes are looking at you uh, because things are out of focus, you know, there's a sense of trepidation, you're performing, and uh, whatnot, you know. The guy goes up the ladder to put a double into the um, uh, baby junior, you know. Everyone's 
there, like 300 people standing looking at the guy. He's performing, right? So what I'm saying is that, you know, you do, you do have that sense of trepidation. You come on a set and your, your heart skips a beat. And then you do a take and you go like, hmm, that wasn't bad. And then do another one and then you're, you're, you're rocking and rolling. It's good. <laughs> You brought up Ozark before, which is a very, a very, very popular show, a Netflix series, a tremendous cast. Working as a as a director around all these incredible performances, really strong performances, do you feel sometimes that rather than trying to coach or guide, you're just putting the reins on and trying to keep it uh, keep it going down a path? I, I've heard this uh, from directors before that sometimes you you let the people go and you just try to rein them in when they start to to go out outside. Or do you how do you how do you come to a to a cast like that it's not my first experience to come to such tremendous cast you know i mean when you have laura linney and uh, jason bateman these are really good actors i mean you know on game of thrones all those guys i mean my god the sky is the limit how do you define a performance uh well the game of thrones was a little easier because i was there from the was there from uh the very beginning and I established that relationship with the actors as a cinematographer. And then segueing into directing was not uh, such a daunting task. When you come into the show like House of Cards and uh, you have a tremendous cast, what can you really bring in? I guess you can bring in cadence, pace. You don't want to modify their performances because they're near perfect. Right, okay, from take to take, you may ask uh, to create some sort of a pause between sentences here and there. Uh, you may slow down the pace or fasten the pace up a little bit. You may discuss uh, alternative uh, angle, and that's about it. You don't want to change things too much because, you know, they're just good. And if something doesn't work, then you step in as a director. And then you go like, okay, if this doesn't work like this, you know, can we... You stop everything, you know, you clean the room and you start working out the scene. And they will find it. They just need a little bit of time. But you need to have that sort of thermometer, if you will, to gauge whether or not, you know, this is the appropriate time to stop and this is the appropriate time to fix, right? Because very often, you know, two, three takes, you know, something's not working, you let them finish the take. You never stop between, uh, in the run of the take, or at least I never do. And then you return back to the take, you have your script, you have the markings on the script, and you say, you know, this portion here, I wonder if you can finesse it. What's not working? Well, I think this, this, and this, and this, what if? Let me try it that way. They go about it, and they fix it, and it's all working, right? But you need to be able to identify that and present it to the, to the actors in a very specific way, very humble way. You have to be very sensitive to their need. Like, I remember working with Jimmy Gandolfini, who was phenomenal as an actor. When he was sitting, uh, there was a couple of scenes that I did with him uh, and Dr. Melfi, which was pick-up scenes that we needed, um, scenes that were hanging that needed to get picked up. And... Usually those are long scenes, you know, usually like at least two, three minute scenes, uh, sometimes more than that. And um, when you go to Jim and you go, Jim, you know, there's a little paragraph in um, the end of the page two. And can you give a little accent point to this particular current within, within the performance? And Jimmy would go, do you have the previous takes? Do you printing stuff? I'm like, yeah, I have a couple of great takes. I just wanted to fix that little thing. All right, let me, let me try and do something. And so what he does is that he would adjust the entire performance in the beginning to hit that note in the, in the end. That's how, that's, that's, it's, you know, you can compare this to a great musician as opposed to a wedding band musician. Uh, 
that's incredible. That, that's, that's, that's very imp impressive. And when you're working with actors at the level of James Gandolfini, that, that doesn't really surprise me, actually. I know he's uh, just, just phenomenal. Uh, while talking about actors here, and I'm, I'm not asking you to, to name any names, so please don't, uh, you, you may have once or twice encountered someone who may be not, not so great, maybe not so nuanced a performance. Maybe you had to coax more uh, of that performance out of them. How do you deal with maybe uh, someone who's not giving you what you want? Uh, you take time. I know it sounds like um, suicide, especially for the producers. When they look at you, you go like, guys, I need to clear out the set. And I need to work this out. And suddenly everyone's like started to breathe very, very heavy. Yeah, but that's, that's a very important thing. And uh, you need to gauge it and you need to also incorporate it into the day. And that's where preparation comes into play. Because you need to define your day such that you give yourself a cushion. Um, like if, I, if I'm given 12-hour day by the producer and I say, okay, you got to fit in these four scenes into 12 hours and you have to find a way to make it work. Yes, sir. So you go, you should always define it such that, you know, you could withhold one of the angles if things are go going great. So you could finish some of the scenes earlier so that if something doesn't work, you have a little cushion. And now to answer your question. There were moments on some of the big shows too where you just can't get a performance from, let's say, a particular child or a particular um, um, lesser actor. The most important thing that one can do is actually relax the actor. You have to make sure that the actor doesn't feel threatened. It's because of him, you know, the set is cleared. You know? So it's, it has to be done in a very clever way. Sometimes you say, you know what, we have a technical problem. We need to figure this out. Guys, can we figure out this technical thing, you know, that generator is not working? You know, come up with a lie. I know it's a white lie, but you have to come up with something, right? Um, okay, while they're fixing that thing, you know, can we just actually hone down on the performance here, right? And so what you do is, in the most unthreatening way, you're trying to unspiral where and why uh, is this particular actor or that is tripping up or not coming up with the true tone of the emotion of the scene. And what I found many times is that if the actor or actress doesn't understand the circumstance, doesn't, doesn't understand actually what triggers the particular emotion that you're trying to elicit, then that becomes a culprit. You, so you, you sort of understand, ah, they're not understanding how one brick lays on top of the other, right? So you need to deconstruct it and rebuild it and make it feel such that it's not your idea but theirs. Anybody can do that. Those of you who will be parents, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. The kids, you know, that's, sometimes that's how you gotta communicate with them, you know. And that's exactly how it's communicated with this particular circumstance. So you need to define the circumstance, you need to find, define what is it and how is it built, and then go at it in the most honest way possible, right? So, I'm not seeking great performance. I don't care about great performance. What I'm seeking about is honesty, because honesty is the great performance. If that's if this, is, if this is sincere, if it reaches me, if it goes through my filter, I say, print, move on. And if it doesn't, we do it again. And it doesn't always mean that it works. There are moments where it just doesn't work. It just, you know, they're just not finding it. So what you do is you reconcentrate your energy on the receiving side, on somebody's coverage, and brush that a little bit off. And you clean it up. Going back to our sort of general theme of the director-DP relationship, when working as a director, and are there certain aspects 
I mean, I feel like you know the, the DP is there to to del help and deliver your vision, and a really good DP will will bring something extra to the equation. They'll make they'll they'll make your job easier. They'll also bring, uh, you know, maybe some some creative choices. Uh, are there some days that you just wish you were behind the camera and not necessarily in the director's chair? Are you uh... less so uh, in the beginning? Yes. Now um, I've learned to give space to the directors of photography and really be very respectful of what they do because the job of cinematographer is a very thankless job. It's a, Sometimes, for sure. It's a tremendous uh, profession and I have all the respect for the directors of photography. Having been one and having, having been also disregarded as one, um, very often, you know, directors come in with a huge ego. They use you to advance and then they never give you credit. It happens all the time. It's our business. But... There is also such a thing as a terrific cinematographer who can, brings, who can bring so much to the um, equation. I work with a lot of good guys who are just princes. You know, what they, come, what, what they come up with and what they bring to the table far exceeds my wildest expectations. You know, some of the guys have a very heavy footprint and how, some of the guys have a very light footprint. It depends on what uh, and how they're trained. You know, some, some of them have additive method. Some of them have a subtractive method, uh, it's, it's what works for them and how they're defining the image. But it's all in concert of what you want to do, and then uh, choices are being presented to you during the prep. And um, I worked with some guys who come into the day, it's completely outlaid the entire day. You know exactly where all the equipment is going to lay and how it's going to be uh, done. It's just everything is prepped, everything is there. You basically roll within an hour of arriving to the set. This is huge. It's a huge amount of work that goes into it, you know, and also running a huge cruise and, and, and to be able to see a step or two forward, you know, it's like leapfrogging. So my hat is off to the guys who can do that and can do it so seamlessly and at the same time still having great fun and have whole troop behind them, whole troop of, um, you know, grips and um, army of uh, um, lighting technicians and um, the army of uh, camera technicians all behind them and all in one go. To be able to mobilize that unit and to run them as real leaders do and real good leaders do very, very successfully and so seamlessly, that's a huge achievement. You know, it's an army. Speaking of armies, Game of Thrones. Game of Thrones is like an army in the size of the crew and the scope of the production. And I know that there are multiple uh, units operating at the same time and there are multiple directors and cinematographers and... I know behind the scenes there must be a tremendous amount of coordination, but, but for you, working with that team, what's, what's that like to form, the, uh, to, to form the sort of background and basis information and have to marshal so many other people who are doing sometimes exactly what you're doing uh, to get everyone on the same page? What, what, what is, what's working on Game of Thrones like with that just huge number of people? It hasn't always been a huge footprint on Game of Thrones. You know, when we started, we started very, very... Um modestly, I would say. You know, it hasn't, uh, the budgets weren't huge and uh, the days weren't um, aplenty. We probably averaged um, the nominal amount of days, the HBO usual, I would say probably between 13 to 16 days in the first uh, season. Per episode. Per, epi per episode, yeah. Uh, it wasn't also very heavily um, yet, wasn't heavily influenced by visual effects. Some. Because, you know, the dragons were still in an in a egg form, right? Uh, so we were able to save a lot of money there. Uh, <laughs> and um, 
set extensions. We did we did had have, uh, have to uh, deal with set extensions and the um, the wall. You know um, that was a big set extension piece. Winterfell had to be um, completely recreated. Uh, some of the uh, uh, scopy shots of uh, Winterfell in the background. It was all VFX creation. And then some of the things in a yard, Winterfell yard, was actually extended with the green screens and then uh, were built up and um, extended rather into the up and uh, outer reaches of the frame by VFX. But it wasn't huge, you know, so it was very manageable. Second season was slightly bit more expensive because uh, we already had the birth of the dragons was in the first, uh, at the end of the first season. So then the second season, you know, we, we started experiencing some of the costs of the VFX uh, environment and um, that became a little bit more expensive and uh, one of the set pieces that was quite expensive in my episodes was the scaling of the uh, wall, the ice wall, which we shot I think for about eight or nine days just scaling the wall and we shot it in the studio and the rest was uh, extended in visual effects environment and that was huge but that's the glory of HBO, you know, they're completely committed to quality and to have things look as real as they can be and they did a brilliant job i mean it's so compelling and it's so true and so real it looks like that you know but they also were smart enough to give us the exactly amount of day that uh, that sequence needed to be able to photograph it the way that we did alec sakharov thank you so much for being here this was really fantastic All right, so that was Alex Sakharov. Maybe we'll get him in here if he finds himself in uh, sunny Burbank one of these days. Uh, I think that's entirely possible. I would, I'd love to have him back. So, Ilya, I believe is now the time for you to tell me that it is time to pay the bills. <laughs> this is the time that I would tell you it's time to pay the bills. And I, to it. we have to thank our fantastic sponsor, Aperture, maker of incredible LED lights. They were in our shop this week and showed me something amazing. What was that? They showed me a new light called Nova, and it is essentially a RGBW panel light, meaning it's got red, green, and blue, and white light. Mm-hmm. It's incredibly bright. It's incredibly small. It's going to be like 1600 bucks. There's going to be a pre-order on the Hot Rod Camera site, probably by the time this uh, podcast goes live. And I think it'll only be 99 bucks to pre-order to basically put your skin in the game, put some a deposit down if you want to get this thing. But I will tell you, you will see a lot about this coming in the uh, the, the next weeks and or months. Mm-hmm. This thing is going to be highly disruptive to uh, the, the RGB LED panel space. And if you're not a filmmaker or a cinematographer and don't give a crap about uh, LED lights, uh, trust me, though, you will still see these things around. They're going to be used all over the place. I'm very excited to check that out. You should be. (laughs) (laughs) And now, short ends. All right, Ben, it's short end time. Okay, well, uh, so so I'll start. I know that uh, weeks ago my short end was the Watchmen podcast, Mm. but my it really is my obsession this week is Watchmen. And I think it goes right into what we were talking about in our George Foyt fo- close focus uh, segment. I agree because that that's an incredible adaption that is mm, inspired and kind of uh, not yeah. directly from the source material. So. It is. I, I, I keep meaning I, I want to reach out to Larry Fong and ask him if he saw it because he we had him in here and he was the DP of the Watchmen movie. And I actually it was when we interviewed him that he mentioned that they were making a TV series. And I was like, why would they do that? And then I watched this and 
as you know, I have my beefs with uh, Damon Lindelof's uh, uh, two projects of Damon Lindelof's writing uh, uh, work. One is Lost, which I think was a TV show that could not stick the landing at all. It asked fascinating questions that it never had any intention of answering or it abandoned the idea of answering them. And the other one was the Ridley Scott film Prometheus, Mm. which is a prequel to Alien, one of the best science fiction and horror movies ever, ever made. Mm. And uh, that movie also uh, asks some fascinating questions it can't answer. And there were a couple of points in the Watchmen series that I was like, don't Lindelof this Damon Lindelof. Like I, I love, I love, I love nine tenths of your work and one tenth of your work makes me fume with anger. And, uh, and I'm happy to say that it's eight episodes, nine episodes. There's nine episodes. Yeah. That it doesn't just stick the landing that, I mean, to me, it's kind of a new high watermark in, uh, in television storytelling in ways that I never could have imagined. Hmm. Do you, do you rate it as highly as you would rate the, uh, incredible horror slash sci-fi classic then of of alien because i mean here you're you're you're, you're, you know you just gave it like calling it the the best of these worlds and and of course this is uh you know in reality where there isn't this incredible sort of like planet of the apes black mirror episode of cats which you know really really well i have to say that i'm i'm giving it all the accolades before i've given cats a chance and so cats really could (laughs) eclipse watchmen uh in my heart at any moment but uh, I I know that it won't, but I well, just, but I, just also, couldn't re- you, I couldn't you, resist. You can't compare them because Cats is a feature film and Watchmen is a, is a TV series. No, but I I just think that uh, and, and and listening to as I mentioned earlier the podcast the where, podcast where Damon Lindelof yeah. is interviewed by Craig Mazin week to week and goes into kind of a deep dive of what he was thinking about. There are a few little little hanging chads that I feel like they didn't really pay off well. <laughs> Flor- um, Floridian chads. Yes, this, this only works for the people who are older than millennials. That's true. Yeah. Okay. There, there were a couple of dangling participles that I, I, I was a little like, huh? If I really think about it too hard, but I feel like all the major questions that the show asks that are very intriguing questions, it answers brilliantly, hmm. and it continues the story of Watchmen. Hmm. Rather than trying to remake it again, which I think is a fool's errand, and honestly, I think the Zack Snyder film does a pretty damn good job of anyway. I, I gotta say, I do like the Zack Snyder film. I think I like the TV series more. Mm. I mean, I don't. I, I feel like it's hard to compare them. It, it is hard to compare them. One of them, one of them, really is staying truthful to the source material. The other is a, a flight of fancy, but it's a good flight. So yeah, well, I think that it's trying. It's doing what I think a lot of people. Should, don't, should, don't have the balls to do well i think that, okay, like um uh, f- for instance in the 90s when the dogma 95 movement came through and i've complained about this probably on the podcast more than once suddenly there were people who were like i'm gonna make this dogma style meaning i'm gonna shoot it on a shitty camera and i'm not gonna rent any lights now, No, they didn't follow all the yeah the, the tenets that, of dogma and and yeah that's not how you make a movie like the celebration or mifune or any of the other or the idiots any of the the official dogma 95 movies but more importantly i think that it's but what, that's how you make a mumble core that's how you make a mumble core you just get a shitty camera and you get a bunch of people to mumble and mumble yes, core uh, quite possibly but <laughs> My bigger point is, look at what the Dogma 95 people were doing. They were saying, these are the crutches. These are our toys. These are the things we're leaning on too much. We're going to take them all away. And I think that 
what what how this connects to the Watchmen TV series to me is that the Watchmen TV series does in 2019 what the Watchmen comic book did in 1985 and it hmm. takes on a huge topic of of our day which is race, race. yeah and it ex, it explores it through this idea of kind of the masked superheroes and why they would wear masks and at, at all and also kind of goes into things like the Ku Klux Klan and and uh, and the masks that they wear and by the way is outrageously entertaining the whole way through I'm never bored I never feel like I'm being preached at it it feels like a real living thing that the cast is pitch perfect like every episode except for the second to last one I thought were brilliant the second to last one was pretty good I just feel like the information that was in it could have been squashed down to about half an episode but you know whatever Wow! When I make you, my adaptation you, 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 of, the, of of Watchmen, that's how I'll do it. You, you, the, I'm glad you got slightly critical there. Your, your critic. No. Uh, well, it was the only time. The second to last episode, I started worrying because I'm like, okay, how are we, they gonna how are they gonna stick the landing? Yeah, yeah so. I was like, there's a lot of plot threads to wrap up, and you're spending an hour kind of on exposition that I'd already figured out. So why are you doing why are you doing this to me? Maybe it was an intentional torturing thing. I will say for those people who have seen Watchmen, uh, two questions that that still hang in my head one who was lube man the guy who like lubes himself up and jumps into the sewer never never pays off it is it never See, paid off it's and one of those unanswered questions and two why was angela hooked into an elephant that doesn't make any sense come on it doesn't totally. make, it doesn't make it makes elephants no elephants have giant brains it was a whole brain thing it was this whole like you're really? repairing her brain are, I mean is, do you really is need this, that that kind of like explanation you need that you couldn't just let the elephant be I, I cannot I cannot let the elephant go. Anyway, uh, you, you know it's the elephant in the room. It is. Sorry. Anyway, I can't recommend the series highly enough uh, to anyone listening t- uh, to us. It looks amazing. The cinematography is amazing. The acting is amazing. The writing is amazing. It it, it is to me uh, up in the pantheon with things like Breaking Bad and and some of the other TV shows that I, that have changed my opinion of what television can do. All right. So uh, my short end this week, I, I want to ask you a question. Okay. Would you pay money to go into a theater to look at a big television? Like if it was just a television you were looking at and not a projected image on a, you know, a light colored screen. I mean, aren't we kind of doing that now with digital projection? No. no You're saying something that's where the. Where there's the, no projector anywhere. The projector the, is gone. You're basically going into a movie theater. You're paying money to have a to stare at a at a, at at a, a video wall at a video wall. Yeah. Uh, how different of an experience would it be? Mm, not very. It'd be pretty darn similar to what you're what you're experiencing now. Well, but just now the project the the projection booth's gone. They don't have a projectionist. There may not even be any calibration involved. Literally, like one person will hit like play on a, I mean, a DVD I, I player. I burst your bubble, but with digital projection, uh, projectionist is not as important a job as it once was. There's still some, says a former projectionist. Yeah, there's still lenses involved. There's sure, things sure, involved sure. that are. Like um, uh, I guess if the experience wasn't that different, um, I wouldn't have a problem with it because, in my opinion, the reason I want to see something in a movie theater is I want to experience it in a room full of other people. Mm. You don't want to just be in a big screen and have great sound. You if I could have, have a the... movie theater sized screen in my house that I could watch television on, I don't think I would do it. I think that I like you, the... you want the camaraderie. 
You I, want the I you want, want the obsessos on opening night. You I want I want to go see a a big broad comedy and laughter is contagious and when something outrageously funny happens to feel that room erupt into laughter. I want to go see a horror movie and feel the audience get scared. I feel like that is I'm going into a theater to experience other audience members as much as I'm going there to to experience the movie itself. I, I'm gonna go back in time a little bit here, and this is a small tangent. Then I'll get right back to the whole TV right. in the theater. But um, were you with me opening night for AI like twenty something years ago? Mm, twenty years ago? No, oh, I okay. I don't know if we knew each other. Yet. Oh, okay, I, I wasn't sure because I saw that, it at the Vista Theater in uh, in Los Feliz. I saw it at the Chinese, and I remember that was the most hardcore like Stanley Kubrick group of fans all in that room. It was like. You know, Spielberg was involved, yeah. but it was the people had shown up for Kubrick that those are the people who were there. You know, they'd they, like printed out cardboard cutouts of Shelley Duvall so they could yell at them. It felt it felt <laughs> nice shining reference there. Well, well done. There's there's a ding. There's a there's sound effect. There's a there's a point for you, Ben. I appreciate that. But uh, OK, so eight o'clock uh, Friday night at the Chinese theater waiting in line. Hundreds, maybe nay, a thousand Kubrick fans. It was it was palpable. I'd, I'd never had an experience like this in my life where I went to go see opening night first run in Hollywood of mm. what was being billed as a Kubrick movie. Uh, by the time you get to the because like three years earlier, you didn't go see Eyes Wide Shut. I didn't. I okay. didn't get to go see Eyes Wide Shut. So I, didn't, I also I didn't. saw that at the Vista Theater. Uh, was it was it packed filled with I, uh, it was. Yeah. Oh, OK. So by the time the ending rolls around, you cannot hear what is being said in the theater because the boos are so loud. Wow. It was the, the Chinese theater. If you can imagine a thousand people booing the screen and and I, I, I still wanted to hear what was going on. So I, I, I wasn't saying anything I would, but I was truly booing on the inside. It was unlike anything I I'd well, ever seen. That's so, I mean, booing on the inside is fine, but booing out loud in a movie theater when people might be enjoying themselves. That's just rude. It, it was, it was hardcore. And I don't yeah. love that movie, but I don't have that kind of hate for it. Hmm. Yes. Uh, anyway, my my point, though, being here about the camaraderie in the theater, it can be a positive camaraderie. Mm-hmm. It can be a, a negative camaraderie. It can be somewhere in the middle. It rarely turns that. Negative. I, I'd never had that. Neg- I'd never in any movie in all of my years. have never had that experience ever of people trying to the screen think like I that. have. So. I don't I don't know that. I have. And it's too bad because people were really on board. They were so on board. I got the feeling that up until the point where Haley Joel Osment is uh, underwater and presumed dead essentially where it fades out and he and the teddy bear are there and i'm sorry if you've never seen ai and i'm spoiling this Spoiler, for you. Yeah, yeah. totally spoiled it for you but uh i think if the credits had just rolled right there it would have been uproarious applause like the, no one needed the coda no mm-hmm. one needed aliens no one needed the, the the ending that's tacked on there but uh i'd never seen an audience turn like that hmm. like vitriol and then like there was a there was crowds of people standing outside at like 10 30 at night going WTF that was uh, that was it was a pretty remarkable sort of like but uh, you see how you have a story about that that yeah. you wouldn't have if you uh, just definitely watched not it if, by if, yourself even on a big screen even if I watched it at home on a big screen that's I would I mean, never have that experience no. I, I don't think that that's a, a great story of the depths of human decency but I think it's an interesting story yeah I I, I, I will tell you the closest experience I've ever had to that is actually after seeing the room Tommy Wiseau's The Room. Uh-huh. Yeah, with people standing outside going, again, WTF, for entirely different reasons. But I, mean, uh, I worked at a number of movie theaters, and uh, obviously if you do uh, some unsatisfying movies, end up on the big screen and people get pissed off. But I, 
I think that the closest that I can come to you is, uh, this has gone way back, 1994, and it was the Flintstones mm. movie. And it was just, it was packed. That movie was made to be a giant hit. And yeah. then uh, when it was over, I remember all of us ushers and stuff noting, like the people walked out, just they all just looked wan and sallow and miserable like they just the walked. life had been sucked out of them you would you you seriously would have thought that they were all walking out of schindler's list there's something incredible about the collective experience of a, of a dark yeah. theater and i think it's, it's interesting and wonderful that you say that that's the reason you, you go to a movie theater because i don't think many people actually I don't, state that i don't think people think about that but i think that when i think about uh, and i think this gets back to your point even though i don't really know what your point is yet i know this is, this is a long-winded point we're, we're kind of circling it but i think that like when i want to see something on the big screen like why would i want to see for instance an errol morris documentary on a big screen when documentaries are something that we're kind of used to watching on home video and in fact netflix and you know, HBO and 60 minutes have been doing world-class documentaries for 50 years. Why would I want to go see the fog of war as I did or any, any number of other documentaries. And it's because a lot of times there is something very cinematic about movies like that or man on wire, but also fantastic movie to see on the big screen, seeing movies like that. You really, uh, it's the communal experience. So uh, yeah, it's neat when a filmmaker knows how to use the big screen properly, but I think a lot of people know how to use the big screen properly and are doing it for television and it's fine. It doesn't, it, 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 it isn't ruining television or movies. It's just, we're, we're porting an aesthetic from one to the other and that's totally, totally cool. But I think that it, uh, when I really drill down, I want to see a, I want to see a movie with other people. I want to, I want to experience it with other people. All right, so the, so the point I'm getting to here about TV, a big TV, paying to see a big TV in a, in a theater is that I now believe I've seen both versions of the direct view technology competitors out there, which mm. create very, very large screens. One's made by Samsung, the other's made by Sony. I was pretty impressed with Samsung because it is bright. And if you really want to get bright in a theater, which uh, some theaters are very dark, it's it's kind of impressive that you can do this. You can't sit very close. It's also uh, got some issues potentially with sound because the, the screen has no perforations in it and whatsoever. So the sound doesn't come exactly from the screen. You have to do huh. some fancy footwork with where you place your speakers. Uh, and now I saw the Sony version, which is living in a place called the DMPC, which stands for the Digital Motion Picture Center uh, here in Los Angeles. And it is... Very impressive. You can get much closer to it than you can with the Samsung system. And the blacks on both systems are ridiculous. And so we're talking, I think, like one-tenth of a nit or something like that. Nice. If you, it's like it's black. So blacker than a, than a projected image from a projector. Yeah, blacker than a projected image. Unless you're projecting black leader or something. I, it's very black, I yeah, have to yeah. imagine. So uh, here, here's the thing. It is a little bit different of an experience because the brightness is so very bright if they want to. You talk about HDR, the HDR plasma screens, LED screens that you've got right now. They can be blinding in your living room when you've got a screen that's 30, 40 feet wide and they decide that they're going to turn the brightness up and you've been in the dark room. uh, It's overpowering. There is going to have to be some very judicious color grading, very judicious choices because just because you can put a thousand nits on the screen does not mean you should. Yeah. And you have to Jeff go bloom that shit. Oh my God. The, the, the manufacturers, they want to show people how awesome, how bright they can make the screen. 
they should not be making this screen, this screen yeah. that bright. It because should... they'd like their audience to be able to see anything else ever again for the rest of their lives. Yeah, there's uh, they're going to have to be. It's just like looking directly into a solar eclipse. That's their ad campaign. It, it could be. Uh, and also there's some other sort of weird things when you get up close to it. But, uh, you know, kudos for Sony for for having this exist there uh, and making it uh, an easy way for people to go and get sort of an uh, an introduction. Plus, also, they were very cool and they opened up the back so we could see like how this whole thing fits together. And it's interlocking tiles that they've done such a great job of disguising how they interlock that it doesn't look like anything but one giant screen. But just by the mere fact that it's coming to theaters, I've already heard at least from the Samsung camp, that there might be some plans that wealthy private individuals could just ascend, essentially assemble this sort of thing in a room in their house if they well, so I mean, wanted to. That, that would be cool if you could just make your entire wall a, a, a screen and you could, you know, watch really bright, big pictures on your screen. So that is coming. So that is I very mean, much a there, real thing. There are applications for that that go far beyond cinema. No, if you want the hollow deck, so to so yeah. to speak, if you want to have the even, uh, the Trump loy, if you're looking at a window type of thing of anywhere in the world, there is some interesting technology that is that is video coming. conferencing. I mean, like you could exactly. feel like you're in the same room with people. You absolutely could. You stick it at the end of your conference table. You have a matching conference table on the other side, and voila, Bob's yeah. your uncle. You have to match your ambient brightness to the ambient brightness of the screen. There's a few other sort of tricks you have to do to fool the eye into believing that this this no, is really there. But I, I mean, but I'm, it, I'm not against. I mean, I'm not. Against any technological innovation, obviously. I don't know if that's obvious. Some people are very much against technology, or certain types of technology. Hopefully, if you know me, I am obviously not against technological innovation. It just depends on how it's used. For instance, and actually, the circles. You back. have a fucking unicycle, so don't tell me. <laughs> what? <laughs> Your transportation choice of a unicycle. I, I have never <laughs> transported myself anywhere from one place to another on a unicycle. That's not my. I, I also own a car. Just, just, just to be clear, I also have have used the Lyft and Uber apps, um, <laughs> and a unicycle. And a unicycle. I have the. It's the Uber Uni. Uber Uni. Unicycle. <laughs> Uber cycle. Have there you used go. a? I'm going to keep workshopping bird, that joke. Lyft, or scooter. <laughs> no, but uh, you know, like kind of also to what I was just talking about with the communal experience. One of the problems I have with 3D is the big ass glasses that you have to wear in some of the 3D uh, movies. Oh yes, which cuts out your peripheral vision, which to me ruins the communal experience because like you can't see people. Uh, for me, it, it, that's not the biggest drawback of the 3D glasses or goggles. It's that you're wearing something extra on your face, especially if you already wear glasses or yeah, goggles. Obviously. <laughs> anyway, so so here's the thing: new technology is coming. You couldn't have in not too distant future a whole wall of your house turned into a big screen. Could be 4K, could be 8K, could be something else. But well, it's going to uh, be like, I mean, it, it sounds like it's going to be a certain number of dots per inch that would resolve to whatever giant, resol- you know, end up it, being like 32,000 by 57,000 or whatever. Ridiculous. Yeah. Here's the thing, though, too. Your viewing distance is supposed to increase when you have larger screens like that. You're supposed to be further away from mm-hmm. the screen. Uh, the, what if I did all the walls in my bedroom? With yeah, this that, stuff? there you are. There's your holodeck. You can yeah. you can wrap it around. Be a little disconcerting. I'll possibly. keep walking into the walls because I think that I'm <laughs> on the lunar surface or something. It'll be like in uh, a hall of mirrors. <laughs> It'll be, be a, yeah. It'll be great. It'll be like that scene from It Chapter Two or Lady from Shanghai. Mm. Wasn't there a scene like that in Us though too? There is a scene in a hall of mirrors. Right. In, in us. Well, well, anyway, uh, so so, that, so my short end is this: Will will the audiences pay? Will people want to have the communal experience? Uh, will they 
would they rather have it at home? Would they rather stay home? Uh, I, I, I can't, I don't really have a totally sharp I'm, crystal ball on this one, but if uh, they come up with a Zazzy name. I think people will probably be just Jim Dandy with it as long as it isn't distractingly shitty. Okay. So here is the interesting opportunity though. This, this provides, and, um, you're now going to be able to have a theater that is much smaller, but still holds a similar number of people because the whole idea of the, and you can have rooms that are a different shape, but the way that the way that the theater is set up right now has a lot to do with the projection technology and mm-hmm. the space that's going on. So if you can eliminate the height the, of the roof, even exactly. If you can now eliminate that, we're talking about, you could have conference rooms sort of like the size of the, the room that we're in right now. Wow. Um, where one whole wall is a screen and you might have a dozen, maybe two dozen people inside of that. I think you're describing the movie theater at the Beverly center. That's got a pillar in the middle of the, of the room. And that, that is not a, that is not a pleasurable experience by, by, by any stretch of the imagination. But if you can imagine now your public library having like six or seven theater rooms yeah, and they doesn't require any special engineering, it could essentially be a conference room with maybe a very, uh, slight rise in the seats or the you know, risers. I mean, or give it, give it many years for the technology to get inexpensive enough that people can afford it. But yeah. Oh, it's, it's coming really soon because already in some levels, this is less expensive than the traditional system that's exists right now. Really? And I think that the first adopters are going to be film festivals and they're going to be setting up in maybe places like convention centers or they're some, already doing that. Yes. Honestly. I mean this, think about South by Southwest though. Now with 50 theaters mm-hmm. like and 50 screens all showing stuff at the same time and you're not having quite as large of a communal experience but you got so many more options or so many more start times or so many more this that or the other or now it's a private showing of maybe uh you got 10 friends and you want to go see x movie or maybe the 84 olympics or maybe you know whatever you know thing that that may exist in the archive of of human history mm-hmm. maybe you want to all get together and watch a Zapruder film if you want to go do something like this hmm. Hmm. interesting well yeah this is this is what's coming i think the, the face of the theater is changing and it might be still a big screen but smaller rooms and maybe there'll be more portable or mobile than they will were in the past or maybe you'll see them uh pop up in restaurants or cafes or other things where it's like there's a need for a lot of people to see something have a really incredible experience but it's not going to be 300 maybe it's going to be like 45 i say reinvent the drive-in cinema with this it could it could happen for sure anyway well uh that wraps us up it sure does that was a, that was the longest short end that we've ever done long end that was a long end that was definitely not a 50 foot short end that was like a 450 foot short end yeah the the 400 and 20 foot. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. So, uh, so Ben, uh, where Was can people pot reference? Were you making a pot reference there? With oh, the I hadn't, but, uh, oh. but now that you mention it, it's like, that's hippie. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> so people can find me at benrockonline.com. Uh, yeah. People can find me over at hot ride cameras where we're going to put up a pre-order for that fancy new aperture light. Totally. Check that out. I I'm excited to see it. Yeah. It, it's going to blow you away. Uh, so who do we need to thank this week? Let's thank uh, Alana Cody, our producer. Yay, Alana Cody. Let's thank Kezella Tracci, because, you know, why not? There's some percentage chance he's listening to this right now. Yeah, it's about four. Yeah. But, but hey, that's better than zero. I'll take it. Okay. Uh, let's and thank Ben Katz, ben editor Katz. extraordinaire, who's, hey. who's put this together in a, in a difficult, it was a difficult, painful yeah. one, I'm Speak, sure, for him. Speaking yeah. of Hall of Mirrors, <laughs> man, we did not make it easy for him. No, he's he is going to be pulling out his hair and cursing our names when he when he gets these files. That's cool. I like I like I like people doing that. 
Anyway, so uh, so that that's it, man. We'll that, see you at the next one. We'll see you in a week. Awesome. In a week. Crazy. Happy holidays. Oh, you know, uh, 39 weeks in a row we've done this year. 39 weeks in a row. Yeah, not so bad. We're not doing too bad. All right. Happy holidays, everybody. Yes, happy holidays. This has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening.